Blog Talk Radio. Hi there. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura Mize. I'm a pediatric language pathologist, and I've totally screwed up this intro, but that's okay because if you've listened to the show, you know who I am and what I normally say there, so just kind of fill that in since I've screwed it up. I'm so excited about today's guest. We had so much fun talking before uh, the show started today that I had to, Johnny had to come in and kind of say, the show's about to start. You need to tell her what to expect. So I know it's going to be a, a show with lots of fun and we have so many similarities and all of that. So I'm thrilled about today's show. Before we get started, let me make a couple of announcements. All of my DVDs at TeachMeToTalk.com are now available for ASHA CE credit. So if you have those sitting somewhere, even if you ordered those a year or two ago or three years ago or whenever, dig those back out. Get the uh, continuing education information from TeachMeToTalk.com, and actually it's going to lead you to our sister site, which is MyEI2.com. Pay that nominal fee and earn yourself some CE credit for courses that are in, and DVDs that you've already watched. So I wanted to be sure to get that out there. I know everybody is always concerned about how many credits do I have? Am I going to make that this year? Do I need to get this done ahead of time so it's not so last minute? So wanted to bring your attention to that. I also want to mention that my other two courses, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, and Steps to Building Verbal Imitation and Toddlers are also available on DVD for ASHA CE credit. So all you SLPs who get so sick and tired of having to go to courses for school-age kids and then kind of water it down to fit your birth to three caseloads and early preschool caseloads, you don't have to do that anymore. You can get high-quality continuing education with strategies and tips you can use tomorrow uh, by taking a look at those courses. So again, all that information is at teachmetotalk.com. All right, let's get to today's guest. I'm so excited to have Dawn Moore, who's a pediatric speech language pathologist from North Carolina. How are you, Dawn? I'm great. How are you, Laura? Really good. And we had, again, so much fun talking in that few minutes before we went on air that we didn't talk about what what today's topic was going to be. We talked about how similar our lives are and the crazy winters we've had, even here in the South this year. So, it was tons of fun. So let's move on, though, to our more serious topic, which is speech intelligibility in toddlers. And let me just kind of say why I invited Don to be on the show. I follow several Facebook pages for speech pathologists, and if you're listening and if you don't do that, you really should because I think it's a great way to network. I've gotten wonderful ideas from therapists and have met so many other people who have the same philosophies and it's just it's a ton of fun to participate in those pages and on one of those pages and Don I can't even remember who asked the question or what the original page was but somebody said what do you do for a highly unintelligible kid two and a half to three years old when you're that phonological issues, and I believe that the person said that she had ruled out apraxia, she had ruled out childhood apraxia of speech. And so several people were posting what their kind of go-to treatment plans were. And I'm a language-language-language person, so I posted that. And again, let me just say, we're going to kind of deviate from that 
because I'm so interested in what Dawn has to say about using kind of oldie but goodie therapy approach, which is cycles. And um, Dawn, I'll let you kind of give sort of the history with that because you teach a whole course on cycles now, don't you? I do, I do, and I have for some time now. It's actually um, kind of funny because when I first started doing it for the district that I worked in, um, the presentation was on transparencies. So that tells you how long I've been <laughs> presenting <laughs> on that topic. <laughs> it's not on transparencies anymore. <laughs> it's on PowerPoint. Hopefully you graduated but... <laughs> to PowerPoint, yeah. I did, I ha- and that took me months and months to do about probably six, seven years ago. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's cycles is just absolutely amazing. Um, anybody that's ever used it, you know, knows what an incredible program it is. Um, but of course, a lot of people don't understand, you know, how to use it and don't realize that you can use it for kids that are two and three years of age um, with amazing success. Actually, two years of age and three years of age are just it's my favorite ages because I've seen less ingrained patterns for those kids, and it seems right. like when I start working with them, they can do so much. They get the progress is just incredible. It's faster. Uh, it's so much more efficient, yeah. and and they just they they really zoom with it, which any other approach that I've ever tried hasn't worked as well as Cycles has. Um, well, and I, I let's back up for a little bit for people. For we have a, a diverse audience here between parents and professionals, and lots of therapists who aren't even speech pathologists who listen to the show. So let's kind of back way up to the beginning (laughs) and talk about phonological disorders, diagnostic criteria, what that means. And, again, for our parents who are listening, you know, there's a difference between speech and language. And language is what I usually talk about with vocabulary development and even before that with children who are first learning to establish a social connection Children have to understand words. And so when we have kids that are struggling with those components, with with engaging with people and with not understanding very much language yet and certainly not using any early gestures to communicate, this kind of focus for therapy is not where you want to be when these kids are, are two and three because those kids still need to build those foundational pieces. Today we're talking about that later developing piece, which is speech intelligibility. And so I want to kind of get that little disclaimer out there with any mom who might be listening and thinking, oh, this is where I need to start. This is something new that my therapist has never talked about before. This is, you know, again, brand spanking new information. I want to be sure that we have, that we kind of put that out there so that moms won't try to apply uh, an approach that may not be completely appropriate for their child. So kind of wanted to get that out there. Now, Don, you kind of start with talking about phonological disorders and what that whole criteria for giving that diagnosis to a little one would be. Yes. Yeah, so what um, the way I usually explain phonological disorders to parents, because um, I've sat in a lot of meetings, you know, where people are kind of looking at me blankly, thinking, "What does that mean?" Right. Um, you know, because a lot of people don't understand what it means. Right. And I, I always say that a phonological disorder is an entire sound system disorder. Um, so, like you were saying, for kids that aren't talking, you know, and don't really have interaction skills yet. That's not where we're at. You know, that's not the kids right. we're talking about. We're talking about kids that are trying to communicate. They're trying to talk. They're use, trying to use right. the sounds, but 
they're just not coming out right, you know, and right. really the only people that can understand them are their parents, and, and that's only through, right. you know, months and months and years of, of being able to decipher what they want. And, you know, right. anybody else that walks in the room, as soon as they start talking, that person's going to look to mom and say, what did they want? What did they say? Yeah. <laughs> you know, those, yeah. these are the kind of kids that we want to start looking at, a phonological delay, because most likely there's something else going on besides a language issue. It's more of a speech issue that we're focusing on at that point. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, it totally makes sense to me. I want to make sure that our moms really, really get that you're not talking about kids, again, who are having difficulty understanding language. These are kids... Right for him expression and really saying what they they have that little word in their minds and they understand exactly what they're trying to say there's just difficulty with them being able to express themselves so that they can be understood and to put those little sounds in the right places so that we know what the heck they're talking about so right that's a good way to explain it yeah all right and this differs too from an articulation delay um, because this is where so many sounds are affected as opposed to articulation where you might have a couple sounds like an R and an S, an SH and a CH kind of thing, but most of the sounds in the inventory for these kids are greatly affected in many positions of the word. So so it, that's why I call it an entire sound system delay because it's just it's a global delay in their speech. Right. And so let me ask you how you address this, Dawn, and I hope this doesn't put you on the spot or anything, but what – you know, phonolog- talk about phonological development and patterns and how lots of children, typically developing children, have some of these same kinds of patterns too, but then they disappear the closer they get to three. Do you want to address right. that Right, and, you bit? know, things, right, things like final consonant deletion, you know, where they're, they're deleting a lot of final sounds, um, so even – uh, processes that we consider to be atypical, like backing, where they're saying K's right. for T sounds or they're saying G's for D sounds. My kids did that when they were growing up. Right. And, you know, I've always been taught that that's an atypical process and they shouldn't do that. Well, they right. were fine, and they grew out of it by the time they turned three. And I've actually seen a lot of kids grow out of those kind of things by the time they turn three. Um, but yeah. when you, the problem is if they have one or two processes and things like that that are going on, that's usually not a big deal. But if they have ten processes and right. you really can't understand, a, a, you know, maybe five words of what they say and, you know, the parent right. is down about 25%, that's where the issue comes in. And, and exactly. it's, you really don't know that until you really start getting in there and, and doing a little bit of an inventory with the parent and the child. Exactly. So you've used the word processes, and I like to tell parents that to us that just means patterns. We've identified a pattern that a child, like you mentioned before, a really common phonological process is final consonant deletion. And again, for those of you who aren't speech pathologists, think back to the ABCs. Your consonants are those those letters that aren't vowels. And so a lot of kids, a really common process or pattern is to leave off that last consonant sound. And so what, what this whole system is, or phonological again, processes, is determining what identifiable patterns a child uses most of the time so that, again, John's already used the term um, their speech sound system. We we have ways of kind of figuring out exactly, (laughs) well, hopefully, what a kid is doing there. Yeah, Hopefully, yeah, and anybody who's practiced for more than like two weeks knows what we mean by that. Um, so that that we can determine what exactly is has 
has gone wrong here and so that we can correct that whole little pattern. And again, it's not working on a sound by sound. It's really thinking about it in more of kind of a systems analysis way. And I think to parent, um, sometimes it's kind of hard. They still don't really understand what you're talking about until you get more specific with um, naming particular patterns and then saying, he says the word this way and giving parents lots of examples so they kind of understand it from there. Um, right. Talk a little, yeah. So talk a little bit about the uh, theory behind the approach too, Don, before we get into exactly what you do. Okay. Uh, Cycles, uh, as many know, was developed by Barbara Hudson, um, and she's out of Wichita um, State, and she uses the theory of generalization through targeting those patterns. Right. Uh, and that's, that's the amazing part of Cycles is that um, those patterns that we've talked about, things like using final consonants, other patterns are um, syllables, and maintaining the syllable structure of a word is another primary pattern. Other patterns are things like fronting, where um, kids aren't using those back sounds of K and G, and they like to use the T. So cat is tat and things like that, right. which is a very common kind of thing for young kids very to do. Common. Yeah. And then cluster reduction is another big one, where you know they'll say poon for spoon, uh, and, and they'll say snake for snake, those are very common types of things that young kids do too, but we start to look for those to start to dissipate by the time they turn three. Uh, and again, once they start, they're, if they're doing a lot of these patterns, you know, over and over again in their speech, it just makes it so much more difficult to understand. And of course, we all like, as speech therapists, we like to see substitutions rather than omissions. We like to right. see them put something in that spot. Because to us, that says to them, you know, that says that child knows there's supposed to be a sound there. I just can't say right. it yet. But right. for a lot of my kids, we'll delete a lot of them, and they'll just throw it away. And that says, uh-oh, I, you know, they all know that's supposed to go there. You know, they they right. completely, you know, missing that part, so that's something we have to work on. Um, another pattern is stridency deletion, and this is a big one for our, our phonological kids. And most kids with phonological delay will evidence this where they'll take the noisy sounds of our speech, things like S's and Z's and CH's and F and V, and they'll use things like T's and D's for them. And, and right. it's a very, very common pattern. Um, a lot of kids do use it when they're starting to acquire speech, but as they go on, again, it needs to fall away, and for many kids it just doesn't fall away. And it just makes them so hard to understand, and especially for our little guys who, again, aren't having any language problems. They're using five and six and seven word sentences, but nobody understands the thing. There may be (laughs) a kid may only use vowels or, again, may have those favorite little consonant sounds that he substitutes for everything. And so when when D is their only (laughs) – Ds are maybe a B or their only – consonants and and you can imagine in a, in a sentence like I want more cookies please that may not be the best example there because there are a lot of lip sounds in that anyway but still it's just really really hard to understand these kids so this is again a way to kind of analyze what the patterns are and figure out how can I get this kid using a different pattern so that he's easier to understand and again the whole this whole theory was developed too so that you're not working on one sound in one position at a time, which is what kind of historically 
speech-language pathologist did, and I can't imagine doing that. Can you imagine how long that would take for a kid to be in therapy when you're looking at at uh, fixing sound by sound by sound rather than working on a pattern or a sound class? Right. Well, the, the thing is a lot of people still do that, um, and that's why I try to train people to let them know there's another way that's more efficient, you know, because if you do look at a sound like S and, and how many times a child might say that incorrectly in a word, depending on where it is in the word, you know, right. just working on S alone will take you forever. And, you know, after working right. in the schools for 15 years, I saw that happen. I saw kids that were in pre-K or started therapy at, at three years of age and were still in therapy in seventh grade because of that, the, you know, that approach was used, a traditional articulation approach was used instead of something right. like a cycles approach that right. showed you a more generalization. You know, when I first started learning right. this approach and read that, by targeting things like the S blends, the clusters, things like SPs and STs and SNs, that you could generalize, that will help you to generalize to sounds like F, V, S, Z, CH, and SH, I, I didn't believe it. I mean, I'm, I'm reading yeah. it thinking, there's no way that's going to happen. How is that even going to be possible? And after yeah. it did, I mean, it was just, it still amazes me to this day, you yeah. know, that, that you can target something so simple like those S blends and to see that generalization happen is absolutely incredible. Yeah. So did you have cycles when you were in grad school, Dawn, or was that something no. for you after grad school? You didn't? After grad yeah, school. I in, yeah, I had cycles in grad school. And so, but it was new then, you know, in the right. 80s, early 80s. 90s, pretty new. Mm-hmm. And I heard Barbara Hodson really, I mean, kind of early to mid-90s. So I've known about cycles for a long time, but you're right. There's a whole knowledge gap sometimes in right. our field for therapists who've never thought about this. And here's another thing. I think there are a lot of therapists in early intervention who know about cycles because they learned about it in grad school. It was something they that maybe a supervisor used at one time, but they haven't really dusted that off and thought about using it with older toddlers and younger preschoolers because they they just have forgotten about that that approach. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this today so that we are, uh, even with therapists who are younger than we are, who might have uh, learned about cycles but just from a theoretical perspective and they've never really, really used it. So let's talk about how you determine if this is a good therapy approach for children and the kind of things, again, we've talked about this a little bit, but how do you rule out um, whether this is going to work for some of your kids? We've already talked about the the piece there with interaction. We've already talked about that we're making sure receptive language is moving along and that those foundational pieces are in there. So beyond that, what would you do to think about this is this is what's going to work for this kid. Do you just do that with your evaluation process with looking at what they're already saying? I do. And one of my go-to tests for uh, any kid that I believe is phonological is the HAP3, Hodgson's Assessment of Phonological Processes, the third edition. And it's the follow-up to the APPR um, revised, which is it's just it's an amazing test. Uh, it's an amazing measure that just gives you probably more information than any other test that I ever have um, or have given in my arsenal. And it's just incredible to be able to 
look at a child and go through those words. And there's 50 words on the test, and it's, it's not easy, you know, for them to be able to say these words. But you really do get a lot of information about their inventory and what they can and can't do. And one of the things that I've seen um, over the, the years now that I've been working in early intervention versus school-age kids and preschoolers is, you know, most of my kids will maintain syllables, um, and, and usually that's the first pattern I'll look for. You know, are they maintaining the right. syllables, even if they're using a vowel? You know, if they're using a right. vowel, that's still a maintenance of a syllable. They're still holding on to it. Um, but what I'm seeing with the early intervention kids is that's not the case. You know, exactly. their syllables. And so so give ahead. an example for parents who are listening, because every speech pathologist listening knows what you're talking about when you say you're targeting syllableness. But a mom may not get that. So, so tell us how you would explain that to a mom that you were talking about this with. So for for kids that are really young and they're not, you know, I'm, I'm listening to them and I don't hear them using a lot of syllables like they're, for baby, the word is bay. You know, they'll just say right. bay. And for mama, they say ma. <laughs> yeah, or ba, exactly, yeah. or ba. You know, they're just not using, you know, really yeah. a, a big portion of those syllables, even though they're trying. You know, they, they want to talk and they want to use those parts of words, but they just don't know how to do that. Uh, and then, you know, you get into Beyond two syllables, you're getting into the three-syllable words. And a lot of people are probably thinking, oh, my gosh, two, you know, two-year-olds saying three syllables. Yeah, believe it or not, they do. They yeah. can say a lot of three-syllable oh. words. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when they're talking in connected speech, too, you know, they're putting two and three words together. And really, when you string them together, that's, you know, three or four syllables at a time that they're, they're throwing exactly. out there. So uh, I usually will do an early inventory on top of the half um, with the parents and go through some initial sounds like the uh, initial B, D, H, M, N, P, T, W, and Y, and just go through those and literally just do a CV inventory, kind of see what they can do with it, um, and CV by consonant vowel. So I'll just have them do things like bay and have them say that, and I say, okay, well, they can do one syllable. Well, let's try two. Let's say bay, bay, and see if they can right. imitate that. And then I move on to three syllables, bay, 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 and see if they can do that. Um, and I also, I move on from that using not just bay, but then I'll change the vowel up. So we'll do B, 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 you know, and just go through each little part and see what can they do, what can they not do. And it's yeah. pretty obvious early on, as soon as you start that process, to kind of see, okay, B sounds great, but I couldn't get a D to save my life. You know, we couldn't, right. they was right. just not coming out. So it's like, okay, there, I know right there, we've got to focus a little bit on D. Um, so right. okay. that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. With okay, back up for just a second, too, Don, and give us that list of early consonants that you're doing. Again, you're doing your bilabials, so your yes. uh, BPM, right. and then your alveolars, DTN, and then mm -hmm. you had a W and an H in there. And did you say you go ahead and do uh, I do the Y as well, the uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I do. And H, okay, H is always one I throw in there because um, it's really, and I really have to watch when I give the hap too because that's a sound that's very hard to hear if you're not paying attention. And oh. I have, um, in the past, I've had, I've had this, uh, a spectrum from one end to the other. I've had some kids that H is their favorite sound and they use it for everything. Yeah. Um, one of my first cycles kids was a kid that H is for everything. When the preschool teacher called me and said, you need to come down here and listen to this kid because we don't have a clue what she's saying. And she, and I got down there and she's saying, I have a ho he. And, yeah. and I said, she's saying she has to go pee. <laughs> but H is but for everywhere. That. Yeah. And, but you and, know, the first you know, time I had, 
the first time I had an H kid, I mean, I literally flipped her upside down going, there has to be something weird in your mouth here because this is not a pattern you hear all the time. It's really an infrequent pattern. It was an infrequent pattern for, for, right, for a long time, but for some reason I ended up with all of these H kids. It was this pattern that just exploded. You know, everything in our field goes in, yeah. in cycles and, and comes, you know, sure. back around. And for some reason, yeah. H was the favorite thing for me for a couple years, that I found every H kid that ever existed. <laughs> so, I had three but that was good girls. because I knew how to work on it. <laughs> I know. And I had three. I remember when it, I remember I had an H kid and then I didn't have one for a long time. And this was, gosh, probably. 10 years ago, and then I had three little girls on my caseload at one time. They were all H kids, and I remember thinking, what is going on? There must be some kind of planetary misalignment or something right now because this does not happen when you have all these kids doing the same kind of atypical phonological thing that you don't even really, aren't even able to really think about. So it's so funny to hear you say that, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, H, H was H does the favorite one for a lot of time, a lot of kids for a lot, a long time. Now I'm back. Now we're kind of back to the normal things of D's and T's right now. So yeah, we're getting back to the basics. Well, yeah, which is good. It's also more comfortable. Let's talk a little bit about backing. And you talked about this pattern earlier, where mm-hmm. and again that means that children are using the back consonant sounds, your your throat sounds, your K's and your rather than sounds that are made in the middle or the front of your mouth. The middle sounds would be those T, D's, and N, and then the front, T, B, and M. And so when a kid is a backer, again, I learned, like you did, that that's a really atypical pattern and that we always need to work on that. But for a long time, I mean, I felt like for years and years and years, I had a ton of kids were backers. And research now says that that's because of the whole back to sleep thing. So that if you take, if you took kids that even had just a tiny bit of decreased muscle tone, and if they never had tummy time, their parents, you know, again did the whole back to sleep, and the kid was in a container, you know, with full first, you know, till he bolted out of there when he started walking. You know, he always kind of stayed in that reclined position so that that little tongue fell to the back of his throat, that made a lot of sense to me, that that's why we were hearing that atypical pattern because kids kind of positionally didn't, weren't always in the position to even make those, those consonant sounds, sounds that should have been toward the front of the mouth. Right. So I, but I haven't heard as many backers in the last couple of years as I did there for a while. Has that been, and, and you said that's been your pattern too, right? It has been, yeah. I haven't seen as many backers um, lately, and I always um, considered H to be um, a back sound too. So um, if you think about where you make H in the mouth yeah. and, and the position, I always considered H to be a back sound too. So my H kids were also backers. It's a really interesting, um, you know, way to think about things and why, you know, yeah. kids made sounds that way and why we had such an influx of them. Um, it's, it's probably, uh, there's probably a lot of truth to it. You know, I don't doubt it. I think yeah. that's why a lot of kids end up with reflux and everything else and stomach yeah. problems that, you know, they didn't have in the past too is the same reason. So, yeah, I, right. I could definitely see why that would that would affect how their how their tongue is is always in that position. Yeah, I, and I totally agree with that. All right, so as you're doing that early inventory, you walk kids through that process. You're using you're getting them to imit, that direct imitation of you with just those consonant vowel syllables. All right, so Don, what do you do if you have a kid who who's not great with imitation? 
Well, that's where you got to get creative. Um, you know, and yeah. I've had many kids that are not great with imitation. Um, you know, for, we are doing every possible thing that we can do, um, you know, to get them to want to try to do these sounds. Right. And, you know, things like stomping and clapping and banging toys and jumping. We're yelling. We're whispering. Uh, one of my little girls likes to tell her words to the Teddy, Teddy Graham that I'm holding, and then she gets to eat them. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, anything you can think of, uh, you know, to get them to, to try. Uh, you know, and, of right. course, you know, parent involvement is crucial because when they're not with you, you know, they need to be trying them. I've got parents that say, you know, they won't do anything for me in the house, but the minute I strap them in their car seat, they're bay, 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 bee, 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 die, 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 do, 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 down the road, you know, and they'll do right. them all. You know, and, yeah. and so I tell parents, you know, anybody that comes up with a new thing that's working for their kid, I'm coming, you know, I'm saying, here, try this, here, try that, you know. Right. So it's always right. always a huge bag of tricks and a way to, to get them to do it. You know, for some kids that even the, the CVs are hard, you know, or they can, yeah. they can do maybe a B, but they can't do an M. You know, we're using the M to help us get the B where we're putting our lips together and doing a mm, buh, you yeah. know, and things like that. Yeah. You know, that, that's where the therapist brain has to kick in. That's where we have to exactly. modify things. That's where our training comes in to say, okay, I know I can get you to do this. We've just got to figure out a way to, to get you to understand how to do it. And that's, that's right. the key. Okay, so tell me how you pick your vowels with that, John. Do you stick to long vowel sounds? Is that what you normally do? At the beginning, I do. Um, I found that, that it has been the easiest thing. You know, and, and I'm not, I've never been a fan of um, producing sounds in isolation. Um, I, I've yes. never done it. I just don't think it's natural. Kids don't walk around saying, K -k 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 -k, you know, right. for any reason other than a phonics lesson. So I've just never right. been a fan of that. So anytime I do any probing or any baseline, it's always with the long vowels. And that was something that um, was introduced to me in grad school by one of my clinical supervisors. And I mean, he was amazing. And it was, I just saw a big difference in what they could do when you pair it with that vowel than what they could do in isolation with just that, that consonant sound. It seemed like that pairing of the vowel made it so much more easy for that child to be able to attempt it. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I stick with the long vowels until we get to um, final sounds, and then I kind of right. change it up a little bit. I think that's a good idea, too. And, again, that makes sense to parents, and a lot of times a lot of speech pathologists will say, why are you, why are you saying long vowels versus short vowels? Why are, you know, why are you differentiating it like that? Da, 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 da. I think those of us who've practiced a while really try to do anything we can to get a parent to understand what we do. And so breaking it down, a lot of parents remember that from, from learning how to read and from their own elementary school experiences with long vowels and short vowels. So I still use that terminology too. So that's why when I read your post and, and, I, and I saw that you said that, you know, I start with long vowels, I thought, okay, now this is somebody I can relate to here. <laughs> doing a lot of the same kinds of things and i do yeah and i i the long vowels also you can hold them out you can't hold out the short vowel so when i'm having a child work on you know we're saying bay 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 i can do bay bay yeah. bay and i can hold that out and they can hear it longer focus a little bit more and try to do it i had a kid i just saw today who you know he can it was really hard for us to get through, you know, baby by Bo Boo and to get a three-syllable presentation on each one of them. But for, and for some reason, when we get to buy, he, he falls apart. He cannot do that AI sound at all. So I was breaking that down. So that's where, you know, that training kicked in. I said, okay, we're going to figure out how to get this. So we couldn't do bye, bye, bye because he would change the vowel. So we 
separated it. So I said, bye, and then he would do it. And I'd say, bye, bye and then he would do it, and then yeah. I'd do the last one. And then it came out perfectly. And that's what his Love mom it. said, yeah, I can't get him to do that one. I said, this is how we're going to do it now, and eventually we'll put it back together once he gets used to saying that vowel sound. Yeah, any of those little diphthongy vowels. And, again, that yeah. for, for parents, that just means you've really got a sound where it's really kind of two vowel sounds there together. That's going to have some kids are going to have difficulty with that because they still have that sequencing piece that's a little bit off and I know we're not talking about apraxia we're not talking about much planning we're really talking about phonological disorders but we will see some of that and that's why again I still think probing like this and even using kind of a modified cycles approach even when we suspect apraxia is a better way to go because you're naturally working on that sequencing piece and getting those sounds together because so many of our little guys with um, motor planning issues do sounds in isolation. It's when you right. get them to try to put them together it's where they fall apart. And so to kind of go to this approach as you're, as this is where I'm starting with every kid with speech sound mm -hmm. disorders, um, I think it's a better approach because your bases are covered and you're targeting what they actually need versus teaching a kid to do a sound in isolation and then, then he gets it and then he never can move beyond there. Everything stays segmented for a long, long time because you didn't really practice putting that together from the beginning. Right, and that's that's why I really like this approach too. Even for kids, and I have a couple now that I do sus suspect are apraxic, you know, I've seen really good progress with this approach, you know, being able to, like you said, that complexity, having that high level of complexity at the beginning. See, and to us it's a high level of complexity. To them it's a high level of complexity, but it's not really, it, but it, it, we are setting the bar kind of high for them, you know, to have them put these three syllables together, but it's, a, you know, it's only a consonant vowel. We're not asking them for a final sound, so, you know, we are asking for a little bit more than they might be able to do, but for most kids that I have seen, they're able to do it, you know, with modifications yeah. and, and backing up and changing when we need to. But for a lot of kids, they're able to do it, even the ones that I suspect are apraxic. Yeah, I think so too. All right, so you get through your early inventory and you figure out what kids are doing, and you said you've already given that that formal test. And, again, let me just say to therapists, if you're thinking, oh, I can't do this because I don't have that Hodgson test, yes, you can. You can still use this approach informally. And, again, you're going to have to put your thinking cap on, and you may have to go back and pull out that original green book that we all own. Well, I, you didn't do it in grad school, Dawn, but a lot of people have that targeting. And I have it. Feet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that the, and again, I, I bought it. That's how I learned how to do her program. <laughs> yeah. But you might have to bring that book back out and, again, do much more thinking than if you had a test that just would really identify your patterns for you. And that's okay. And so, again, I want to be sure to put that out there so that don't feel like these ideas aren't going to be applicable for me because I don't have the particular tool that she said to use. Right. And I told you, too, I'm writing this all up. I have it almost all done, so I am writing it all up, and I'll put it on my website, too. Um, and I just call it cycles modifications for 18 months to 2.5 years. Um, and it's just basically what I've learned to do with my, my younger kids that really aren't ready for a full-on cycles approach yet, but still working right. at that syllable level. So I am writing that up so it will give people a little bit of a framework. You know, one of the things that's really bad for me about our field is I really crave structure and this field is probably right. the worst field for me to be in. And, and you, know, you know what I'm talking about, because most of the people I think in our field are A-type personalities, 
you know, that really need that structure and things like that. And this field doesn't have that. So I've found out over the years I have to create my own structure, you know, which I've done, which is why I love Hudson's program because it's structured. (laughs) So then I was able to kind of leap off of hers and and create some more structure for some of the younger kids. Okay. So – so after you have your inventory and you know what a kid can and can't do, how do you kind of move that forward? How would a therapy session look if you were doing this modified cycles approach with, with toddlers? So once we get through all the initial early sounds, I will uh, usually, depending on the ability of the child, um, some kids I just target one sound per session and do it for two sessions. So maybe it's just a B. Um, I've, got, I've got a little girl now and I've just did one one sound per session, so we did B for two sessions. So we're literally doing bay, 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 B, B, B. And when I, when I count, you know, what she's getting right, bay, 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 all produced correctly without her throwing the first B away on one of those, that's one that's correct. And then B, 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 she's got to get all three to have that be correct. Bye, 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 same right. thing. Right. Um, you know, and when we started doing this, you know, she was real good with B, but then we got to sound like H. You know, we, we finished B twice, right. we did D twice, and then we got to H. Well, H, Okay, we hang got on three- a second. Let's, let's talk about this. We forgot to say that with a cycles approach, you only stay on a certain sound for a small number of sessions, and you're going to move to a new pattern and the theory or a new sound here. And the theory is you're going to give a kid time to kind of own it and it generalizes without you having to work on it for a year and a half right would that be that's, that's how correct. I explain it how do you explain okay do you do about the same kind of explanation yeah exactly yeah I just tell them we're gonna we're getting exposure so the child's going to get exposure to all of these initial early consonants in this three syllable presentation and that's going to give them the exposure to be able to build on that for us to get to some final sounds as we go through uh, and then I also give them the homework, you know, here's what you want to practice, here's how you want to do it. And so then they're doing it, you know, when I'm not doing it, most of them are, and, and they see that progress and the kids really start to, to start trying more sounds and trying to start more, compl- you know, trying to say more complex structures. And it's incredible, the kids that are really ready to do this, how fast that can happen for them. Okay, so tell me again kind of what your therapy activities would be. You're getting them to do direct imitation. How do you make that more – do you try to make it more functional, Dawn, so that they're realizing, okay, I can say this, but this bye-bye-bye that we just practiced really is the same thing I need to say when I'm waving to Daddy as he leaves rather than whatever they used for that before. How do you kind of make that leap so that those words become functional? To be honest, in the therapy, I mean, we're literally just playing and, you know, running around the room and having a good time, and, and I'm, I'm saying it, and then they're saying it back, or they're talking to the teddy bear, you know, the teddy gram like they like to do. And, right. and then, you know, the parents are the ones that are taking that next step to making it be that, that more functional um, level. Okay. You know, for me, I, okay. I think my job is to get them to get through all these and to get as many practices, you know, productions as we can in our session to get that extra exposure going on. And then the parents have right. pretty much taken the lead in that area and, and been able to, you know, foster it into to new environments, you know, and doing new things. You know, we're so limited in the therapy room with how much, you know, you can get those sounds out in a natural context. So I'm literally focused right. on just on that, that drill and practice and imitation and things like that. Yeah. That mass production is so important, and it, it amazes me. How many therapists don't know that? They'll get a new word 
one or two times and then they're moving right on or new sound pattern and then they move right on to something new and I think that's a disaster <laughs> because the child didn't have enough initial practice and again I call that owning the sound or owning the word or whatever and so we we want to make sure that we do build those opportunities in for lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of repetitions there and the cycles approach does that because you're not working on you know, 15 different goals in one session, you've got that pattern that you are targeting over and over and over again. Exactly. Yeah, uh, so after, you know, after we go through the, you know, I get to H, and that's the cool thing about this is that, like, with this child, she could do um, two syllables with H's, but she couldn't do three syllables. So, you know, that's where, you know, it kicks in and you say, okay, well, you know, today we'll do, we'll do hey, hey, you know, he, he, hi, hi, ho, ho, hoo, hoo. And then towards the end of the session, though, I started adding in the three syllables because she was doing the two syllables so great and she was able to get it. So just in one okay. session, she went from being able to do two syllables to being able to do three syllables of that sound. That was amazing. And that happens a lot. You know, but being okay. able and be, knowing when to pull back a little bit and then to jump forward and increasing that complexity or decreasing is, is key. Okay. So when, when I went back and kind of reviewed that early inventory, that list, is that the order? Tell me the order that you do that in, that you present those sounds in, Don, or it doesn't matter to you. <laughs> I actually it really do it just by the alphabet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's the order that I do them in, just because it's so much easier for me to remember it. You know, and okay. to make sure that I've targeted all the initial early sounds. So okay. it's the init- the order is B D H M N P T W and Y. Um, and then sometimes I'll switch the M and the N around. Maybe not okay. have them next to each other just because they're so similar. Um, some yeah, kids have a real problem with that. So sometimes you know right. I'll be like, oh, you know what? I think I think little Johnny here is might not might not do so well if I try to do N next next session after we just did M. So you know I'll change it and put P in there and then go back to N okay. the next time after I do two sessions okay. of P. Okay. Do you normally do two sessions? Is that what you do? I do two sessions for each sound. Yes. Okay. And within those sessions, though, you're trying to get all those back with yes. whatever your content target is. Okay. Yeah, and it's either if I'm at the two-syllable level or at the three-syllable level. And there's some kids I've had to do stay at the two-syllable level for every sound, and that's fine. Yeah. Some kids have had to stay at the one-syllable level. Well, we're just doing bay, bee, bye, bo, boo, and I have kids right. like that now. And that's all we can get, and that's right. fine because, you know what, I know we'll be able to move on quickly and add in some more syllables, you know, in the next couple weeks. It'll go pretty right. fast. Okay. So you're seeing pretty pretty rapid progress from what you're describing there, and see that I am be... I am seeing a lot of good progress with these kids. Okay, okay, all right. So let's kind of troubleshoot. What what do you do when you have a kid who's not really doing the vowels? Do you automatically think, uh, I don't know, I'm gonna back up and just kind of take a second look, and maybe this isn't phonological a phonological issue? Is that what you do? Or how yeah, do you if, think about if they're that? not, if they don't have a lot of vowel sounds, um, you know, and and they're just having a lot of trouble, then I I might back up and work a little bit more on on the language, work work a little bit more on the consonants, you know, and try to add it in, um, getting them to do. And I've got a lot of kids now that are doing a lot of jargon, you know, things like that. And these are kids with, you know, on the spectrum, you know, autism spectrum right. disorders and things like that. You know, I I and it kind of it's fifty fifty. You know, a lot of them can do this, but a lot of them cannot. 
Um, so if they yeah. can't do this, you know, we'll we'll back up and we'll do, work a little bit more on the language side of things until they're ready yeah. to start doing this. One thing that I've seen yeah. um, with those populations is that recording them has really kind of got them out of their shell a little bit because these are kids that do want to talk, but, you know, they're not always ready to do a lot of things on demand. So, you know, with all of the apps out there, the recording apps on phones and things like that, and I literally have just old-school digital recorders, they love to record themselves and listen to it. So that's something that I've, that I've started doing and has really brought some of these kids out of their shell a little bit, and they're, they're a lot more willing to try some of these structures yeah. than they were in the past. I think, yeah, and I think any time that we're working on something with kids and you're getting nowhere, you know that you're headed down the wrong path. And so right. that was kind of my original question with that, with if you've tried a lot of things and it doesn't seem to be working, usually it's that we're working on an area that's too hard. And I love yeah, that you just, said they're that. they're just not ready for it. Yeah. Yeah, developmentally not there yet. And, you know, I'll just tell you honestly, I've never done cycles with a kid that I thought was on the spectrum because – in my clinical opinion, I would be working on all those other foundational pieces too. I'm still struggling to get them engaged with me, and if they don't understand many more words, I think, eh, I don't really care what you sound like when you talk yet. And certainly, mm-hmm. in my opinion, those kids would kind of fall fall there, and I might save this for what if we've got that language piece and that engagement piece a little more, um, you know, that we don't have quite as much work to do in, in those areas. Right. And I seem to have some more mild kids. Um, you know, I've got some that really do engage really well, uh, you know, uh-huh. and really are trying to communicate and getting to the point where they're so frustrated because people aren't right. understanding, you know, what they're saying. You know, those are the right. kind of kids that I, I'm trying this to try to get them to have more functional, um, you know, speech and articulation than they do now. And we do right. see improvements, but it, you know, we'll see, it'll be, you know, one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. It's just yeah. slower. And that's just the nature of the beast, yeah. What we have. All right. So that's kind of your what, – what else do you need to add in there? What else do we need to know if we're going to try this approach? You've kind of walked us through um, the well, beginning. After I, yeah, after I go through this, you know, do all those early sounds, um, I, I'll go through it one time. If, I've, if I'm targeting them by themselves where I'm doing, um, you know, B by itself for two sessions and D by itself for two sessions, then I'll, I'll go through an entire cycle where I've done everything all the way through yeah, and then I'll go all the way back and start back at the beginning. But this time I try to combine um, the sounds and try to get through it a lot faster. I just want to get that exposure in there, get a little bit more solid foundation. So this time I might combine the um, bay, 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 and with uh, and then do also day, 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 d, d, d. And so I'm doing B and D together, uh, H and M together, and that kind of thing. And I'm doing that right now with one of my little ones, and she is just absolutely flying through it. Her percentages are almost double where she was the first time we went through it, even though we're targeting two sounds in a session. And it's it's real. I'm really seeing a lot of progress, and her mom is just thrilled at what she's actually attempting to say now, whereas she wasn't really attempting to say much, you know, up until this point. Okay. Um, so it, the exposure has just been great. Okay, and so what kinds of things then are you going to give for homework with this, Dawn? And, I, again, I'm going to kind of make that connection between, okay, how does a kid get it? From when he's imitating you and you guys are doing this kind of from a speech-sound perspective, how, do, how are you – knowing that they're generalizing that so that parents are seeing really functional gains. 
Well, the, for the homework, I have a speech notebook that goes back and forth with all my parents, so I literally write down, and for some of these kids, I write a whole page. Uh, you know, I'm literally writing down everything that we're doing, what worked, what didn't, what cues I'm giving them, and then the words, okay. you know, if we're using bay, 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 BBB, and to actually use those. And then, of course, you know, letting them know, you know, you know, this is a real word. You know, I call them nonsense words, but a lot okay. of these words are real words. You know, yeah. so, you know, like you said, bye, bye, bye. You know, so this is where you can start to see, are they starting to use that? Are they using it more? Are they using it, you know, correctly kind of thing? So I just let them know to start looking for those and start to, you know, make the connection. We make it because, you know, this is our job, but then they start to make those connections between those words that they're practicing and when they're starting to use them in, in true speech. Okay, good deal. All right, you said the word cues. Tell us what your tricks are for cues. Um, for a lot of the, you know, it just depends on the sound. Um, H's, you know, that's always a hard sound for a lot of my kids. So we call that a breathy sound where, you know, we're, we're blowing out a big breath. You know, of course, the, the B's and things like that are hard for kids, you know, so we're making sure the lips are together. We might have to use an M to get the lips together because maybe M is easier. So we're saying B, B, and using those kind of cues. So whatever I've got to do, um, you know, with that child I literally write the exact same thing in the notebook so the parent is aware tongue depressors you know I've got a kid now who um, you know trying to get his tongue up for the end has been really really hard for him and he doesn't understand what I'm telling him to do so using right. the tongue depressor and getting him to put his tongue up so then I gave mom tongue depressors and showed her how to do it and towards yeah. the end of the session he's finally understanding put your tongue up what, what put your tongue up behind your teeth means, and he was starting to do it on demand. Right. And then she saw him do it, and, and I said, use the tongue depressor, you know, use it for five words, and he's literally at the one-syllable level, take it away, try it without for five words, give him the cue, put your tongue up, take, put the tongue depressor back in his mouth, have him say the five words, and then go back and forth between the two. Right. And let me just kind of caution Moms, if you're listening to this, you really need your speech pathologist to help you. And if your speech person says, let's not use that for this particular child, then don't go nuts trying to do that on your own. Because I've Correct. seen parents kind of, again, <laughs> you know, they're right. bagging their kid because they think, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So some kids don't tolerate, tolerate the tongue depressors well. <laughs> a lot of toddlers don't. And so if you're feeling that, pushback from a kid it may be that he's not ready for that yet and I you know again I think it would be I mean what's your experience with that been Dawn do most of your kids tolerate that uh, they, they have actually, they have tolerated pretty well. But, of course, you know, we're doing alveolar sounds. We're doing those front sounds. So we're not really getting in there, you know, and doing a whole lot. Even if we're doing the back sounds, I'm holding the front of the tongue down. Um, so yeah. I'm not too far back in the mouth. But, you know, um, just showing my parents what I'm doing, you know, with that. I try to limit using, um, you know, tongue depressors as much as I can. It's pretty much my last resort. Yeah. Um, just I was hoping you I, say that. <laughs> yeah, I, it's something that I, I try to eliminate as fast as I can, but, but I will use it if nothing else is working. And with this little one, he just couldn't get his tongue up for the end. So, you know, once I showed him, though, you know, I know by the end of the next session, he's not going to need it anymore. And, and we're going to build on that because next we're going to D, which is another sound he's got to make behind his teeth. So already he's going to get more exposure with put your tongue up behind your teeth, he's going to know what it means. So, you know, my goal is to, you know, use it as, as, as little as we, we need to and then pull it back as soon as we can. And, and that's what I let Good. the parents know as well. Well, and I'm so glad you said that because, again, I think if a, if a mom heard this or if a therapist and you've been trying for, 
eight months to get that tongue depressor in there and you still don't you're still having to use that you know you could have stated that a long time ago so i want to be sure that we're kind of missing. right yeah okay what other kinds of cues do you think really work with toddlers um i, I call some of the things, sound i mean i call ahead, every sound to me has a name in that what you do um, I actually haven't done that. Um, there's been a lot of books. Okay. Like I use the Easy Does It books for um, for cycles. It's a Easy Does It books, a phonological approach. Easy Does It for articulation, a phonological approach. Those are my favorite uh, books for cycles. But at this level, because I'm just doing a lot of syllables, I don't use cards or anything. I don't have any target words. Right. I'm just literally using them. Um, so I'm pretty much using a lot of hand cues, you know, with, with my fingers mm-hmm. on my lips. Um, doing a lot of visual where they've got to look at me, you know, with a P, you know, we'll pop our fingers off the lips, you know, and that kind of thing. Wow. Um, but I don't really have a lot of sounds or a lot of names for, for the sounds. And I know a lot of people do that. Yeah, a lot of people do. and But for some kids it really confuses them. And I think, well, and I've seen some therapists or, or especially parents, if a kid uses the wrong sound with the wrong the wrong kind of cue that you've given, say that you're saying, you know, show me your popper sound, and they do a D or something. Sometimes they think, oh, my goodness, we've really confused them with their little name of the sound is supposed to be versus just cueing the sound. We should have just kind of kept it more simple. Yeah, and I, I try to keep it as simple as I can with, with the younger ones. It seems to work a little bit better for me. But I've just, I've never really had, you know, I haven't had any training where a lot of them, you know, where I've learned a lot of names for different sounds and things like that. So for me, the cueing has been the big thing that I have done with the kids. Okay, good deal. All right, what other, in our last little five-minute wrap-up here, what are some other tricks you could give us or what other things have we not talked about that you would want someone to know? Um, one of the, after I get through all of these um, initial sounds and, and get them to the point where, you know, I usually do about two cycles with these initial sounds using what I call the nonsense syllables. And then I will go back and I'll start over and start with some final sounds. So then at that point I'm trying to incorporate what we've done and all the work we've done with the initial sounds and trying to add some early initial or final consonants on the ends of them. So so now we're going to move from our consonant-vowel combinations to our consonant-vowel-consonant. And typically, you know, the final sounds that I'll pick will be things like T's and N's and P's and M's, you know, that we're going to try and start adding on to these, the final sound uh, for these words. I've seen a lot of good progress with that. Kids respond pretty well because they've had a lot of exposure to the beginning consonant. If right. they can't add the beginning consonant, you know, and sometimes they can add some beginning consonants but not all of them. You know, they can't do it with right. a lot of them, you know. So I have to go in and, and there I'm making another inventory. Like, okay, we can do B with N, but we can't do B with M. We can't do B with T. It's just that's not working. So whatever they can do, we're going to focus on that. We're going to add the other ones in later, and maybe we won't have to. You know, once we get through right. using B and N together, then, you know, it'll help to generalize some of those other ones, and they can add some of those other final sounds. And that's what I've seen a lot, that they're now, once we get a consonant-vowel structure going, and that's Hodson's theory, you know, once you focus on the structure of the sounds and, and the words, then they'll start to generalize a little bit more with some you won't even have to focus on. Okay. Yeah, and that is the theory, and it, it is great when that happens. What if it doesn't happen, though? You're still just going to... If it doesn't happen, you got to just keep plugging away at it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. You just keep trying. You might, you yep. know, and again, you'll note that that pattern's not here this time, but hopefully that next round you'll start to hear some new things come in. All right, so after you do CVC, what do you go to next? Uh, After CVC, at that point, I'm I'm pretty much at a 
a real cycles approach. You know, it's not ha- doesn't right. have to be modified at that point. Uh, and at that point, if they can, I start adding in some final consonant blends, um, like final TS and PS and KS, and then hopefully initial consonant blends um, at that point. And it kind of freaks a lot of people out when I say that I do yeah. um, initial S blends and final S blends with two-year-olds, uh, but you'd be amazed at what they can do with them. Uh, and and well, I'm still a amazed lot of, at what a lot of kids can yeah. do. And I think it does. We kind of get our perception gets skewed as speech-language pathologists, and sometimes we're even shocked that two-year-olds talk because we work with <laughs> nonverbal kids. <laughs> right. But typically developing kids will start to use some of that stuff. And, again, that's the theory is that you can introduce even some harder sounds. And, and even if initially they're not quite as stimulable for that as you would hope, that pattern does come on in. And there's a whole – if that's new information for any speech pathologist – Listening, that's a really accepted kind of approach now is to really work on later developing, um, again, sounds that may not even be stimulable when you first start because they're think the, the theory there is, like you said, Don, that exposure that's going to come on in. And, again, some of those other pieces that they've been missing are going to emerge as well, and you're, you're really reducing your treatment time. Right, and I do focus on L and R um, with two-year-olds if they're able to do so. Um, if I'm really doing a cycles approach, I will focus on initial L and initial R, and that's Hodson's program. And I have seen just a phenomenal results doing that because I build, like you said, those foundational skills. And a lot of those kids will go on, and they're not going to have to work on R and L. They're going to get it on their own eventually when it's developmentally. They're ready for it. So I, I right. haven't had those kids that have stayed on you know, fifth and sixth and seventh grade that need to work on R&L because we focused on it when they were two and three. And then they were able to, you know, everything synthesized and it came in for them and they were able to get it. Yeah, and I'll just just be honest, I've never done that, but I don't know that I would necessarily rule that out as something that's something I would never do. And if I had the right kid and the right set of circumstances, I can certainly see uh, how that would be. Okay, and beneficial yeah. for those kids who need that. And you make a really good point about our kids who are still struggling with R in middle school. <laughs> if if you look at those children's records, you will most likely see that they were phonological when they were three. That's usually right. the R kids that are left over in middle school. And it's usually because the approach that was used was a traditional articulation approach. So that's usually how I start my cycles workshop is say, if you're sick of seeing these R and L kids in middle school, <laughs> then this is yeah. what you need to start looking at. You know, this is where you got to start. You've got to start at the preschool level and start working, you know, in a, with a different approach. You know, and it, cycles isn't the only one out there. There's a lot of different approaches out there. Um, but just to take a phonological approach rather than a traditional articulation approach makes a big difference. Yeah, and I do. I can see theoretically how that would really, really apply. Now, I don't want a lot of early intervention um, people to tweet right now. Laura Mize and Don Moore said we need to work on R with two-year-olds. We're not necessarily <laughs> saying that no. to be your only therapy goal, okay, people? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. But I, I do advocate working on some of these sounds, you know, uh, especially these early consonants and these the three-syllable presentations and things like that with these young kids because one of the things that the parents are really looking for and as we are looking for or should be looking for is speech, 
we're looking for speech. You know, language, we, we know that and when we're looking at these kids that are expressively delayed, they're usually expressively delayed because they don't have a lot of articulation. So, you know, and I think in early intervention, it, sometimes that's lost and everybody's just focused on the language, which yeah. is great. You know, we all I mean, know that's a building block and we all need it. But, you know, speech is there too. We've got to focus on that as well for these kids that are really ready to start working on these sounds. Yeah, and I do think there's a way to kind of have best of both worlds with that and include right. this as part of your treatment plan. And especially when you get a kid to the point that you think, okay, he's got a decent vocabulary here. He is combining some words, um, and we've got some, you know, three and four word sentences going now, but nobody understands what he's saying. And so with those right. kids, we do need to back up and kind of take a look at that. And let me just tell you with L and R, as somebody whose name is Laura, Boy, do my kids get practice working on that. And sometimes I think that is the worst possible name for any early intervention SLP. But I am always surprised when a kid who hasn't had an L all of a sudden gets it. And I think, wow, you know, that's, again, that's what's supposed to happen. Their little systems are supposed to mature, and we're supposed to see that progress without having to work on every stinking sound. Exactly, and I and I went to speech for R and S's, so I didn't name my children with any R sounds. <laughs> no, there were no R's in, in my children's names. <laughs> well, my children's names got simpler as we went. I started out with Jonathan. I guess I wasn't really thinking about that when I named my children, and by the end we end up with Macy. So it got there. You go <laughs> simpler as we went. Well, Don, you Easier. have been so much, yeah, so much fun today. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing this uh, modified approach. Now, touch your website and where anybody can get more information or how people can contact you if they have questions. Would you mind if anybody emailed you or contacted you from the oh, show? No, no, not at all. I get emails every day. Um, my website, thank you again, Laura, for having me on. It's been great to kind of talk about this and, and get this information out there. I know a lot of people are doing the same kind of thing, and it amazes me at, at just the, um, the ingenuity and the creativity that therapists have um, you know, right. with working with these young kids and things like that. Um, the, my website is www.expressionspeech.com. Um, it's Expression Speech and Language Center, and we're in Burlington, North Carolina. And on there, if you haven't been on it, the therapy documents page is where you want to go because that just has pretty much everything that I've ever used in therapy or found that I thought was just amazing. Um, it's basically a culmination of 15 years of experience in the field and and um, things that have worked for me and, and information that you might need. Um, a lot of it is school-geared um, because I was in the schools for 15 years, but starting right. to add a lot more of the early intervention information and then modifying what I know for school kids to early intervention. So um, I'm going to upload this cycle's modifications for the young kids that I started doing um, as soon as I get it tweaked. Unfortunately, I tweak a lot. So um, it'll probably yeah. change, but I'll get it uploaded <laughs> so that people can find that. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of information on there. Um, there's webinars on R and things like that. Um, my cycles outline is on there. If you haven't, you know, had a lot of exposure to cycles, you can pull that off and and um, be able to uh, read about that. And I'm actually getting ready to do a workshop in my office um, April 11th um, for anybody that might be interested in something like that. I know your listeners are all across the country, but we're going to have a workshop the here world. on cycles and R therapy and things like that. So, and now again, all that information is on the website too. And my email address is just dawn at expressionspeech.com. Great. Well, it has been so much fun. I know I'm going to have to have you back and um, so we can continue to uh, find out all your other tricks for helping our little guys for having to learn how to, how to talk. Thanks so much, Dawn. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate it.
hang in there for your next round of ice coming your way with the winter that will never end. Yes. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. You can reach me with any comments about today's show or suggestions for future topics at laura at ttpod.com. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.